Hi, I'm Jane O'Reilly, and this is Ageless. I'm 40, and my life is just getting started. I'm here to share real talk and real experiences about how to live life ageless. Nothing's off the table. You know the vibes. Let's go. Welcome back to Ageless. I'm Jane O'Reilly, and today I'm joined by Dr. Dawson Church. He is an award-winning science writer with three best-selling books, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and his latest, Bliss Brain. Dr. Church has conducted dozens of clinical trials and has founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to study and implement promising evidence-based psychological and medical techniques. Its largest program, the Veterans Stress Project, has offered free treatment to over 20,000 veterans with PTSD over the past decade. His groundbreaking research has been published in many prestigious scientific journals. Dr. Dawson Church is also the editor of Energy Psychology, Theory, Research, and Treatment, a peer-reviewed professional journal. He shares how to apply these breakthroughs to health and athletic performance through EFTUniverse.com, one of the most visited alternative healing sites on the web. Dr. Dawson Church, welcome to the show. It is such a pleasure to be here, Jaina. I know we're going to have lots of fun. I know. I'm already feeling this energy with you, and I love it. Um, So I'm sure it comes to no surprise that I want to talk about the brain today. Yeah, I know. That's where so much of our well-being starts. And I look at how focused our culture is on externals, and we look for our well-being at things outside of us. And of course, those things outside of us, like being basically safe and having good food and clean water and security and and a roof over our heads are, are really important. And yet what we often don't realize is our thoughts, our quality of mind, our brain health is incredibly influential to our well-being. And if we get that right, that everything else starts to get a lot better in our lives. So the mind and the brain. The mind (laughs) and the brain. (laughs) And you have a new book out called Bliss Brain, which you focus on positive and negative moods and the effects of emotional states on the brain structure. So let's talk about that. Well, what was really impactful for me was to start to read the neuroscience about how quickly our brains change. And I, I wrote the book in a probably what some people would have looked at my life externally the year I wrote the book and said, uh, how can we write a book called Bliss Brain? Because I, I just the, a few months before, my 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 wife and I had been wakened in the middle of the night and a wildfire was racing down toward our, our home. We literally grabbed our car keys, threw on some clothes, ran to the car and drove out through the flames. And we just lost absolutely every possession we had. Our office burned down. We lost all of our cars. We, but many of our neighbors died. I mean, we got out before the the, the flames consumed that whole area, but a lot of our neighbors, 22 people didn't make it out of the oh that area and 5,000 homes were destroyed that night. And so um, it was just a shattering experience. And we were, I mean, we were just devastated by just have, losing so much so quickly. You just don't realize in, in, in a few moments, your life can be turned completely upside down. And so in the it, 48 hours later, we were we we kind of gotten ourselves away to a hotel about 30 miles from from that area, and so we were safe. We were kind of still really shocked. We just got uh, some photographs from a friend of ours who who snuck in past the National Guard and taking photographs of where the house used to be. 
and it was just ash on a concrete slab and a chimney sticking up, and that was it. Same thing with the office. And so we now, now knew that our office and our home and all, all of our possessions were gone. And it was just a a really, really uh, beginning of a very traumatic time for us. And yet that that second day after the fire, I said to my wife, we have to meditate and we have to ground ourselves. We did that. And suddenly we literally began to joke about the fire. We began to say things like, I said, you know, we've had this goal for the last five years in our office of uh, moving to automation. And our goal has been to have a paperless office. And guess what? We've met our goal. There isn't a single piece of paper, <laughs> not a single scrap of paper anywhere in the office. I mean, if you had a joke about stuff we own that we we just were just kind of a um uh, a uh, things we didn't really like that that it had gone up in flames. We didn't really want them anymore. Of course, we lost a lot of stuff we loved, but we had to realize it's a mixed bag. You know, the stuff that that you 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 get rid of that way. So we we in that year after the fire, meditating and using EFT, acupressure tapping, and getting energy therapies, getting psychotherapy, and really watching our lives, I, I realized we were not in any kind of traumatic stress we were we, we moved through it very very quickly we felt the loss i mean we felt uh the impact of all of that but but in that year as i meditated i was hitting these high transcendent states every day and i began to research the the the, the neurochemicals of, of of ecstasy like anandamide and serotonin dopamine oxytocin beta endorphins and it turns out that when you meditate all of these things get much higher in, in your brain, and you literally are moving into these ecstatic states. So I wrote the book in that year, and I, I was applying all of the tools I teach in my classes. And we found that these tools, when we apply them in our own lives, helped us move through that very difficult period and recover super quickly. So that's where, where Bliss Brain came from, and a time, a time in my life when people looked might have looked around and said, Dawson, you are about as far away from bliss as you could possibly be right now. And the truth was, I was there most of the time. Well, first off, I'm so sorry that you went through that, but also so grateful that you're here with us today, that nothing happened to you or your wife. And wow, I I can only imagine how traumatic that was, but I loved your story and I loved just the the positivity you were able to find in all of that. And, and, you know, going to meditation, that's not going to be a normal response to something like that. So that's enormous that you were able to go there. And, um, I did want to, uh, go into that a little bit more about the, the meditation part and the seven neurochemicals of ecstasy you were talking about and that you teach about. So how do you actually create a self-induced high? Oh, what a fabulous question, Jaina. And the, the first thing to realize is you can. And the second thing to realize is that these are the same neurochemicals that people typically are looking to the outside world supply. And there are two words I use in the book. They're, they're technical terms in biology. One is endogenous, which means inside the body, and there's exogenous, outside the body. And so right now, for example, drug-assisted psychotherapy is becoming very, very popular, and microdosing is very popular. So people microdose on psilocybin and occasionally on other substances as well. 
What we don't realize is that psilocybin only has an effect on the brain and makes us feel euphoric because it mimics the effect of an endogenous substance in our own bodies, serotonin. And in fact, psilocybin, the molecule from magic mushrooms, docks with the same receptor sites in our brain as our body's own endogenous serotonin. Dopamine, cocaine, and heroin. Um, other and uh, uh, other other substances like THC from marijuana, anandamide. So we have this pharmacopoeia in our brains with all of these substances. Most people just don't know how to unlock them consciously. Occasionally, we may have, get enter a flow state or have an, a really ecstatic life experience. We feel a sense of bliss and flow and transcendence. But with the right kinds of meditation, what we're finding now in neuroscience is that we can trigger the release of these hormones and neurotransmitters. Dopamine, if you meditate effectively, and there, again, there's a lot of ineffective meditation, but there are a few styles of meditation that are very effective. If you meditate effectively, dopamine goes up 65% in your brain. Serotonin can rise dramatically. Oxytocin can go up a lot. Beta endorphins, you have a flood of these ecstasy-producing beta-endorphins and anandamide, the bliss molecule, is dramatically higher in the brains of meditators who are doing it effectively than, than in, in ordinary people. So we're literally becoming high. And it struck me, I've, I've yet to get this insight looking at images of meditators who were in these deep states. And like this a beautiful image of um, St. Francis of Assisi painted in the 1600s. And it shows him just literally passed out. And I looked him passed out there and I think, huh, he looks like a stone. <laughs> and he is. I mean, so what beta endorphin and, and anandamide and serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin. And so this is a really potent, potent mix. And after a while, it's also highly addictive. So people who begin to, to meditate this way, they crave the these pleasurable chemicals. So people think they need to go microdose or smoke or or pop pills, or just do, do various things. All we're trying to do is recreate the endogenous biochemistry we already have. And if you learn to do it right, again, you're getting this flood of all these pleasure-inducing hormones and neurotransmitters in your brain. And you're sitting there totally blissed out, totally stoned in the morning, feeling wonderful, and you're doing <laughs> it all endogenously. <laughs> so how would we even start? How do you even begin? Well... You want to do something that is effective. What you don't want to do is what I did for so many years, trying to meditate from my teenage years. The, the teacher I, I had back then said, meditation is simple. You close your eyes and still your mind. And those instructions did not work for me. And they don't work for most people because our minds are not designed to be still. So my mind was racing. My mind was busy. I had monkey mind. And so you can't do it that way. What we found through research is you need to do things that are physiologically based. And that means keeping you in your body. And that is techniques like breathing. We teach breathing techniques that give people this sort of experience. If you just, for example, slow your breathing down to six seconds per in-breath and six seconds per out-breath, immediately you're dropping into a state called heart coherence. When you're in heart coherence, your brain waves go into coherence, and then all kinds of other physiological responses in your body also go into that same state of coherence. So now we have a coherent body, have a coherent brain and heart, and we start to feel much, much better. And it's 
as simple as that rhythm of six second in-breaths and six second out-breaths. And so you do that. I then have people stack different techniques on top of the other. We do some self-hypnosis. We do some mindfulness. We do some acupressure. And you add in all of these physiological cues and you're telling your body through them to go into this deeply relaxed state where you're also very, very alert. You aren't spaced out. You're there, but you're you're really relaxed. And then you start to feel these floods of neurochemistry as all of those neurochemicals are released, all this pleasure going through your body. And you then have this incentive to go back there. We find that people who do this don't need to set an alarm after a few weeks. They don't need to encourage themselves to meditate. They don't drop off their meditation practice simply because it's so pleasurable. You wake up in the morning, it's the first thing you want to do. You are as addicted as any heroin addict. <laughs> <laughs> Love that analogy. I actually have a <laughs> spiritual practice that I do. I look forward to it every single morning, but I've been terrible about meditating. I just, I haven't been able to find the right fit for me. And it's, it's, I would be the one that's setting my alarm. Um, so I'll have to re-listen to this podcast and take some notes from you just to come up with a, a plan. Cause I just, I love the idea of naturally going to a place of ecstasy without having to take in any substance. Yeah. And it's just remarkable that we can go to those ecstatic states without taking any external substance. And what we then do, I, I talked to an old Cherokee medicine woman who actually guides people on plant medicine journeys. And I asked her about this question, you know, I mean, we can just smoke something or or uh, have a, an exogenous substance and feel so good. And she said, yeah, well, you know, I, I lead people on these journeys. We do just that. But it just takes them to that place for a while with that exogenous stimulus, and then they drop out again. You need to learn to take yourself in there at will. And she said, the only reason for these plant journeys I lead people on is to show them that there's a there, there. There's a place of mm. ecstasy there. After that, it's up to them to learn to get there themselves. But I, I developed a, a meditation method called eco-meditation, E-C-O, eco-meditation, many, many years ago. And it's, again, simply a set of, of evidence-based physiological cues. And we now had millions of people all over the world start doing it spontaneously. And they do it because, again, it's so easy. It's just the breathing. It's a few other physical um, cues you give your body to move into the state. And suddenly you're in this really deep but relaxed state. And then you're, you're, you're unlocking that flood of neurochemistry in your brain easily. And so we have people do this. And again, after a a few times they they get hooked and they want to do it do it more so it's not that hard as long as you do it, do it right if you try and do it the way i first learned to do meditation close your eyes and still your mind the the research shows that most people crash and burn they can't still their mind i can't i've been meditating 50 years i still can't still my mind so our minds are just naturally jumpy they pay attention to the outside world that's what they're designed to do that's what kept our ancestors safe so you don't want to try and pull against your biology. You want to move with your biology, make your biology work with you to achieve those elevated states. I think my favorite thing that you shared was there is a there. There is a there. <laughs> I loved that. 
And, you know, some of us just need to be guided there. And I'm one of those people. Uh, I agree with you. There's That's the way that I learned how to meditate. In fact, somebody said to me once, just pretend like you have a waste basket, like on your computer, just a little icon in your brain. So every time you have a thought, throw it in that trash can. And that works for me for a little bit, but I, I can't stay there. It's not something that I'm able to do well. So um, I'm looking forward to trying your eco method. Yeah, we also recommend self-love because like like I, I, I meditated this morning and uh, I my mind wandered after a while. Then I brought myself back and it wandered again. Then I brought myself back and I, I want, it wandered again. And what I could have been saying to myself was, Dawson, you fraud, you fake. Here you are, a meditation teacher, and your mind's wandering hundreds of times in an hour. And so <laughs> you can get all self-critical and say, oh, what a bad meditation I am, what a bad meditation that was. And if you're full of self-love, you just say, I love and accept myself just the way I am. So uh, just having that sense of love and compassion for yourself is really powerful. Buddhism teaches compassion, and we focus on compassion for others. We have compassion on ourselves. And when we do that, then all of that psychological tension between trying to make yourself do something and trying to shape up and be a better meditator, that just all goes away. You just forgive yourself. You accept things the way they are. And that paradoxically breaks that energy dance of trying to make yourself do things and liberates that energy for elevated states. And I got to tell you, these states are amazing. We teach classes in achieving transcendent states and people feel things. In fact, this this last weekend, I had a group and we were they were chatting and this one woman was saying, I feel as though there's this effervescent bubbly fountain coming up through my spine into my head uh, above my head carrying me into ecstasy other people describe um seeing visions seeing the past present future seeing pre past and future lifetimes um communing with people that have passed on feeling an incredible sense of love feeling in touch with the fabric of the universe feeling as though they're part of a conscious universe that is nothing but awareness and kindness joy and love so the states people achieve, I mean, you, you read the, 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 the experiences of people doing this, and they're extraordinary. And the other cool thing, we're studying uh, people who, who achieve these states, who, who, who meet these, who, who go to that, that there, that is there. And the other thing they say that's really interesting, Jaina, is they describe that as the real world. Once they come back, so they have the, the hero's journey of Joseph Campbell, or the shamanic journey into another other realm that they're doing meditation, then they come back and they wake up and they're they're the mother and that and they're dealing with their their children and getting the kids to school and uh, or they're or they're maybe they're older and maybe they're el elderly parents they're dealing with their their parents and or they're dealing with difficult things at work, but they come back to their everyday life. And then they describe their life, their everyday reality, their body, their circumstances, their the all the other people in their lives, everything they deal with, they describe that as a world, as a reality that is a um, mirage. The real world for them is the there they, they went to. When you hit those transcendent states, they are so real, they are more real than what we think of as ordinary reality. And so when they hit those states and experience those states, to that they then understand that is the literal fabric of consciousness out of which all things 
in the material world arise, and they're no longer that bothered. I mean, they may get sick, they may experience financial struggles, they may, like me, experience a lot of losses of physical things, but you know that that inner reality is there, that transcendent reality of the all that is, is always present. And sure, you know, your, your house burns down, or you get divorced, or you lose your money, or whatever goes on, and you realize that isn't the ultimate reality. You're living in meditation, you're living in the ultimate reality every day. That's what's really real. And all the stuff on the outside is just something else we're doing. It's interesting. We give our, our best to our, our outer lives, but they aren't who we are. Wow, you really put it down. I mean, you really put it down right there. I just loved everything that you said and shared and just going to just knowing that we can go inward and find that holy place is is magical. So I I guess I kind of want to talk about the contrast of all of this and you know what happens to the brain when you're under stress or adrenaline sadness you know what's the brain science there people are far more stressed than they need to be and it produces big shifts in all kinds of different uh, aspects of brain physiology and anatomy and so when you are stressed the emotional brain is highly active and the emotional brain is useful fear is what kept our ancestors alive if they hadn't been afraid of the potential threats in their environment they would have died out. So it's fear that keeps us alive. In my book, The Genie in Your Genes, I begin the book with an imaginary scenario 500,000 years ago, really early humans, two women walking from the village to the well every day to gather water. And I just have you imagine these two ancestors of yours. And so they, I, I call the book, I call them Hug and Gug. And Hug is really a happy girl. She is just always got something cheerful to say, smile on her face, sees the bright side of life. Gug is a curmudgeon. She's miserable. She's paranoid. She's always looking for the wrong in everybody, and the flaw in every plan. And she's not very popular as a result in the village because uh, she just is a downer to be around, whereas Hug is a really joyful being. So one day they're they're walking down from the village to the the, the river to gather to get water and girds like they do every day. And that particular day, there is a hungry tiger in the grass. And they are walking past this place where the tiger is is lying there ready to pounce and gug who's fearful and suspicious sees the tiger first and drops her gird of water and runs hug who's all happy sees the tiger a second later and is the one that gets eaten so evolution has selected us for misery and paranoia for hundreds of thousands of years so today we can be in a totally safe environment. We can be sitting in a beautiful home with all the food available to eat. There are no predators attacking us. We're reasonably uh, secure in terms of temperature and and warmth and, and other forms of physical well-being. And we can just drive ourselves nuts with worry. We can drive our cortisol sky high. That's what the brain is designed to do. And that's what you can shift with meditation. So when you meditate, when you do energy therapies, there are various things you can do to interrupt that pattern. The brains, that emotional brain, that fear-based brain, if you do these things, it quietens down. The amygdala 
in Tibetan monks. Tibetan monks have been meditating for 10,000 hours. The amygdala, which is sometimes called the fire alarm of the brain, because it sends the signal down through the body to activate all the stress organs down into the, 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 the torso. The amygdala in those Tibetan monks begins to atrophy because they just aren't using the emotional part of the brain that much. What lights up in the brains of people who are meditating is what we call, what I call in my book, Bliss Brain, I call it the enlightenment circuit. And it's not like you're fully enlightened like the Buddha or Jesus or something, but you are just awake and aware. You're centered, you're calm, you're alert, you're present, you're in the present moment. And so there are these two parts of the brain, this caveman brain, that, that gug, was served served her so well there's also the enlightenment circuit and you can learn through practice to shut down that caveman brain part of the brain and then dial up the activity of the enlightenment network and suddenly you start to feel way 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 better do that for six months do it for a year and we have clinical trials showing that the enlightenment network then literally begins to grow it become begin it gets bigger and it gets to, gets faster and better at signaling the stress parts of the brain start to become much less active and in those tibetan monks they even start to shrivel so your mind is literally reshaping your brain with every single thought you think especially emotional thoughts that you think if you're in ecstasy your brain shifting that way you're growing those neurons if you're in misery if you're in agony those brain neurons regions are growing as well. And the choice is entirely up to how you use your mind. That is so interesting. I'm blown away by all of this. It's so amazing. Our brains are so massively just so powerful. Um, but I just want to sidestep real quick. Um, tell us more about the veteran stress project. Yeah. The veteran stress project is, uh, a nonprofit I started in 2007, and I wanted to get effective therapies to people with PTSD because you can't hit those transcendent states if you're traumatized easily. We can't sustain them, certainly. You close your eyes to meditate, and you may have flashbacks to traumatic events. So if you were traumatized as a child, if you were traumatized in war, Again, you just can't imagine what it's like to be in a, an environment for maybe six months or a year or maybe more than a year where you're seeing dead bodies, uh, dead civilians, dead military people. You're in, in danger. You don't know where the danger is coming from. Like if you think about World War One, World War Two, we had these conflicts where you had armies facing each other. There was a trench in the front line, but most people didn't serve in the trench in the front line. They were behind the lines. They may have heard the artillery barrages. They never never were face to face with the enemy, except for a small proportion of, of the, the various armies. If you think about other modern conflicts like Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan, you didn't know who was friend and who was foe. And it was there was danger unpredictably present everywhere. And so people who are traumatized in this way, again, they need to be like Gug, that girl who was so jumpy, so paranoid, looking for the bad stuff all the time, which is absolutely fantastic if you're in a combat zone and absolutely counterproductive if you're in, a, in an office work on a team with a family. Often people are treating their children or their parents or their 
husbands and wives or partners like they are an enemy. And we're engaging all the stress neurochemistry and we're screaming at people we love. And that's profoundly dysfunctional. So it's it's important to work on, on your trauma and release that stress. And so with the veteran stress solution, we really got into this, this deep, there was no support for any therapies for veterans back in 2007 at the official levels in the US. Now there's, there is, I mean, we've been approved by the Veterans Administration. You can get these therapies inside VA hospitals. Back then you could not. And so we began to, to, to treat veterans privately. And we formed a network of providers, of therapists and coaches who who were trained in these therapies. And we we did several clinical trials. The very first pilot study we, we did, we found that in six one-hour sessions, we were able to make a dramatic effect on the well-being of veterans with PTSD. So they were coming to us in session one, often with a, a history of years of traumatic um, traumatic experiences like flashbacks, nightmares, hypervigilance, avoidance. And we found that in just six one-hour sessions, they would walk out of the office. It was all in-person treatment back then. They'd walk out of the office after six one-hour treatments, and they were fine. The flashbacks had gone away. Wow. All their symptoms had come down below the level of the clinical diagnosis of PTSD. Now, today, we've done that with over 20,000 veterans. Most of them, we've worked with those, those people virtually. We've now done many clinical trials, many randomized controlled trials. There's now a ton of science showing this works. And again, the, the idea that we can just cure a PTSD in six hours is, is remarkable and we can, and that's what the evidence shows. So that's why I'm so excited about the science. When you've done that, you then can start to meditate and move to those transcendent states. So you have to work through the trauma before you can get to transcendence. You have to work through the trauma because if you start using transcendence as an avoidance mechanism to avoid your trauma, you hit something called the dark night of the soul and that's unhealed trauma so we make sure people do the trauma work and then move on to the transcendence wow i i'm speechless honestly because you really have answered so many many of my pressing personal questions and i'm sure my audience also has just really enjoyed this conversation and we're running out of time so i just wanted to I guess, ask if there's anything you would love to leave the audience with. Well, certainly use the links you, you can see here to go and, 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 and like download the meditation. If you go to the, the link, it's Dawson, which my name, DawsonGift.com, you'll get that meditation. And so use the meditation, just download the meditation. It's 20 minutes long and sit there, you'll feel, literally feel the floods of those neurochemicals coming in into your body. You can download the, the energy work manual there as well and try that, see what effect that has on you. Usually it'll calm you down very, very quickly using the methods we've used for those veterans. And so love yourself enough to really resolve your trauma. Most people are carrying all this trauma around, Jaina, from years in the past. And you don't want to carry it around for a minute, let alone 10 years or, or a lifetime. Right. So use these techniques, let them go, let all those old, early, malign, 
hurts and, and wounds and traumas in your life resolve. And then you have a dramatically better future. And then, of course, you want to train yourself to hit these states of ecstasy. And then that's just your life. You just get happier and happier and happier. I feel so lucky because I'm 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 in a group of now thousands of people who've been doing this work. And you're just meeting these incredibly happy people. You go out in the rest of the world and you talk to people. Like I just happened to talk to a realtor who was selling a, a house next door to me this last week. And she's just so anxious and depressed and worried about the state of the world. Now, the state of the world is the state of the world. All those things she's worried about are true. But her worrying about them, driving her cortisol high, taking away her brain heart coherence, taking away her health, that's not going to help the world at all. You help the world by being a healthy human being. And so what you most want to do is just love yourself enough to apply these methods in your life. Really make that commitment to loving yourself enough to having a regular practice. And then you start to feel dramatically better. You then start to attract more people like that into your life. And you find yourself living in a world, the same world, and yet every day is just overflowing with optimism and joy and altruism and compassion. Same world that we're all living in, but radically different experiences, again, depending on how you use your mind and your attention. So I, my main message is just love yourself. Just go do the stuff. It's super simple. It's free. It's out there on the web. <laughs> and I'm going to put it You'll in the show notes. Do it. Go do it. Yes, we all want to feel good. We want to be as happy as you, Dawson. So I, I, we're all jumping on the board with this for sure. Like I said, I'm going to put it in the show notes and you'll have those links available to you. And again, Dawson, thank you so much for coming on to the Ageless Podcast. This has been an absolute delight. You are a treasure. Oh, thank you, Jaina. So are you heart to heart? And it's wonderful that we're sharing these great breakthroughs with so many people. Bless you. I agree. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Ageless. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Tune in next week for a new episode.